The frame for our budget today is the frame of a really strong economy. We said to Canadians that we would make investments in them, investments in Canadian families two years ago. And the results have been really strong. We have the strongest growth rate among G7 countries. We have among the lowest unemployment rates we've seen in 40 years. A very positive situation for Canadians. What we said to Canadians is we would make investments in Canadians and it would have an impact. And what do we see? The economy is strong because Canadians are working. Welcome to this special Policy Options podcast from inside the budget lockup. I'm Jennifer Ditchburn, Editor-in-Chief of Policy Options Team. I'm here today with my colleague, Colin Busby, a research director at the Institute for Research on Public Policy. Hello. Hi, Jennifer. And Jennifer Robson, Assistant Professor of Political Management at Carleton University's Kroger College. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, thanks for having me. And I'll also give a shout out to our digital content creator, Maddie Haslam, who's producing the show today. So we're, we're actually inside the lockup right now, and we've gone through this very um, dense document, but I wanted to go and do a quick go around on general impressions of the dog. I know this is a big question, but uh, Colin, what's your general takeaway from sure, so the budget? Three very quick hits. I mean, what I liked is I liked the improved economic situation, um, the improved fiscal bottom line, and the improvements to fiscal transparency. And of course, I also like the, the emphasis on Indigenous and, and gender issues, although we'll get to that later. Um, what I was a bit more murky on was, um, you know, the, the ongoing expansion of, of federal government social programs and how how they are going to interact with provincial programs that try to improve the lot for a lot of low-income Canadians. I'm a little unclear as to, you know, the effectiveness of, of, of the programs that are being laid out and how they're going to work with the provinces. And what I would have liked to have seen but didn't see was a little more emphasis on business investment and the climate for business investment in Canada and, you know, what the government thinks as to what we should be doing and thinking about to attract foreign capital. To okay, I'm going to draw you out a little bit more on that later. Jennifer, what uh, what's your kind of overarching takeaway. Okay. It's always hard to, to read a 500-some-odd-page document and, and get it down to like one talking point, but I, I actually do agree with Colin on a couple of the pieces there. Um, number one, yes, there is like some very slight improvement in terms of the overall fiscal situation compared to the fall economic update. That's that's absolutely welcome news. Um, there, Overall, though, I would say that there aren't massive changes here to, to government's plans around revenue or on spending. And so it's kind of a, it's almost like a you know hold the course kind of budget right there are some so in terms of the turf that I cover predominantly looking at uh, lower income and vulnerable groups in Canada as well as gender issues there there are a lot of like signals there and I think some of that is really really promising but let's let's talk about details because that's really kind of where the rubber hits the road right and often governments will wait until the year of their of the federal election to do ma major things I mean in the case of this government they they blew a bunch of money in the first budget with the, the Canada, the child benefit. Um, but these last two budgets have been a little bit more modest. And I think it's because a lot of us are expecting there to be big things in, in next year's budget. Um, for me, I'll just say that I was really interested on the section on um, fundamental research and changes to the government's uh, research capacity, inclu including at StatsCan, which I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. But overall, I'd say I found it a, actually kind of a dense budget to go through because there were so many small things. Um, I think a lot of people were in the media were advertising this but as a, as a thin document. 
Um, I don't. I wouldn't describe it that way because there's just so much to plow through. If I was still a reporter, um, I would uh, be thinking of like days and days and days of stories to write about each of these initiatives and all the questions around them. Um, but uh, Colin, I wanted to come back to you. Right in the introduction, there's a little uh, paragraph about how austerity is bad <laughs> and um, and how this government's doing what the OECD says that to everybody should be doing. What do you make of the, the balance sheet in the, in the budget? Yeah, well, certainly relative to um, to the earlier budgets, particularly the 2016 budget, I mean, it, it, things are looking a lot better. And, you know, the uh, the amount that one would want to attribute to um, the government's policies and the impact that that had on, had on GDP and economic growth, that's really a matter of one's own personal opinion. Um, but, you know, overall, I think things are trending in the right direction. I think that, you know, um, um, there's a lot of advantages from the fiscal situation they're in now for them as a government in terms of room to potentially explore new things, but also, you know, to potentially even um, in, in a very good economic environment, get close to where they'd plan to be um, even prior to the 2016 budget, even somewhere near the, the election campaign. Which so is what? Um, well, I mean, which is really like having deficits under under ten ten billion dollars per year. Like, if things work out really well, they they're potentially within the ballpark of of taking that tact. Um, Isn't that funny though that we're talking about that being the? I mean, just a few years ago, if you said you were going to run a deficit um, of ten billion dollars, it would seem like you, no one would ever you know, elect you. But now we're talking about this. Yeah, is a good they've thing. they've been very effective in terms of changing the the discourse um, politically surrounding the acceptance of deficits in Canada. Um, my only worry on that score is not so much the federal government's fiscal position, but how much that political discourse might affect um, the the general public's acceptability for similar things at the provincial level, where frankly we don't have the kind of fiscal space to be able to accommodate these kind of things, particularly with the long-term fiscal challenges facing the provinces. Jennifer, there's one area I really wanted to ask you about, which was changes to parental leave. You wrote an incredible study for... Uh, the IRPP, um, which is cited quite a bit in the media and so on. So um, tell us about what they're proposing in this budget and how you think that it stacks up. Yeah, thanks. Um, and well, thanks again to IRPP for being, letting me be part of the podcast and also for publishing that study. So I'm, I'm delighted that it's getting a bit of airplay again. Um, what they propose to do is to say for couples where both people qualify for EI, um, if both of the parents take at least five weeks of the shareable part, the parental leave part, then they're going to propose to add on an additional five weeks that can only be taken by the second parent. So, right, not the not the not the primary parent. So, in most cases, we're talking about if if you're assuming a heterosexual couple, we're talking about five weeks of leave dedicated to dad, as long as dad already takes five weeks, right? And mom is also taking five weeks. The rationale that they've given for this is to say that this is about rebalancing uh, gender roles in terms of unpaid work at home and paid work in the workforce. And the budget talks an awful lot about the wage gap, about the opportunity, the economic opportunity to return to Canada if we can actually get more women participating more fully in the workforce, that this is, you know, this is, this is not only just good for women and for families, but also good for the broader economy. Um, but... 
there's always a but, right? What they haven't done is addressed any of the existing obstacles to being able to qualify for employment insurance benefits in the first place. Um, they uh, have left the replacement rate the same, so it's still just 55% of your maximum insurable earnings. Mm-hmm. Um, when I did the math, I figured it, if we assume that it's going to be mostly dads that are taking this, then they're probably looking at about a maximum benefit of about $2,500 spread over five weeks' time, um, as long as they qualify. Um, and um, they're they're not they're not necessarily targeting the assistance at the families that might most need the help. Who might not even qualify for EI. Exactly, right? So they're not necessarily addressing some of the gaps around getting more families uh, on board in the system, getting covered by the insurance that we offer. They're also not really doing anything in terms of making it so that you can actually afford to make ends meet. If you're really low income and you're still getting that flat 55% replacement rate, um, they haven't changed that. They haven't changed that in this budget. So um, looking at, at how they've crunched the numbers, they're, they're allocating about $240 million a year. Um, for the first couple of years and then ramping up a little bit by that. At the time that the program is, hits maturity, it looks to me like they're counting on having about 70% of couples participating in this extended uh, leave program. And you've talked about how the, the issues with um, parental leave, they, they go with the problems with the EI system. And they're not, it doesn't seem to me like they're even studying, looking whether EI is the right vehicle for supporting new parents. Right? No, they're not. They're not. Like, I mean, the EI system was never really designed to do this, right? And we keep kind of adding new, new benefits, new tweaks here and there, but we're not really kind of dealing with the fact that we've been trying to squeeze a round peg into a very square hole, right? So I do worry a little bit that this, this program is just going to be compounding some of those gaps again, and that most of the couples who we're going to benefit from this are probably the couples who already value gender equity, where mom probably already has some pretty good labor market attachment, where dad was already planning to take some time off, and we know that about a third of dads already do. Um, so I think they're going to be hard-pressed to show the major returns from this policy intervention um, over the long run in terms of the wage gap, or even in terms of, of gender participation, or in terms of gender equality and unpaid care. So there is another part of the budget, Colin, that also tackles work and and um, and low-income workers and that's mm-hmm. the WITB or the working income tax benefit It's actually something that the Harper government brought in and then received a lot of cross-partisan support mm-hmm. it helps uh, people who are work in the workforce but um, have very low incomes um, can you tell us about the change that they that they're proposing in here and whether you have any concerns about that sure um, so it's, there's some good and some bad I mean so the, the change so first now it's gonna be they changed the name too. So it's going to be um, uh-huh, uh, yes. yes, it's going to be a, now the Canadian Workers Benefit, not the uh, Working Income Tax. Because you benefit. wouldn't want it to be like what a previous government <laughs> called it. No, right? <laughs> no one ever wants that. No. <laughs> um, but but you know, so there's there's some important changes. So uh, first off, a real shout out for um, for for the automatic enrollment condition in the Working Income Tax Benefit. Really good idea. All people have to do now is fill out their taxes to qualify and submit their taxes to qualify. You don't have to check a box in the corner of a schedule. You don't have to know if you uh, if the tax software is going to do it for you. So real kudos for doing that. I think that's a tremendous measure. Um, the two other, you know, big changes to it is the um, really the the increase in the maximum benefit.
benefit and then the sort of slower phase out rate of the of the of the benefit so um, you know some some really sort of important I think design tweaks made to that but you know I, I do wonder with respect to um, you know where the emphasis of the plan and where the target population of the working income tax benefit has been shifting over time so you mentioned you know um, um, the Harper government brought it in um, well in 2007 in the budget 2007 I mean the program is very clearly focused on you've got a number of examples in the text on trying to get you know um, more full-time minimum wage earners uh, more active in the labor force that really tends to, to, to shine through as a target group and at that point in time um, the minimum wage in Canada was roughly about eight dollars per hour almost everywhere with give and take 50 cents and and today it's a very different story though so today you've got minimum wages which is quite a bit of variation around it and then you've got examples in the budget where the target population for the Whitby is now sort of part-time semi-attached workers to labor force meanwhile you know um, uh, your full-time full-year um, minimum wage earners are still not going to qualify for a lot of benefits under the Whitby particularly when it comes to single individual households and this is probably going to be an important part of the narrative for social policy going forward in Canada is that in the most recent census, we now know that the most common household in Canada are single-person households. Um, yet when you look at, you know, policies targeted towards them, you, you often see that they, they don't, uh, you know, get nearly similar amount of benefits as, as other forms of families. And, you know, to take another difference between the, the most recent budget and 207, um, the difference between sort of what other families were getting relative to single earners in 2007, the maximum benefit was about $500. In the most recent iteration of the working income tax benefit, the Canadian workers benefit, the difference is now $1,000 between the two in terms of maximum benefits. So again, um, you know, I really wonder uh, where things are going overall and, and are we potentially overlooking single earners and their participation in the labor force? Very interesting. Jennifer, you wanted to jump in on that? Yeah, I just wanted to say that, um, like Colin, I think that the idea of auto enrollment on this one is actually, it's inspired. Um, the budget is projecting they're going to get about another 300,000 uh, people who are going to be receiving the benefit as a result of that measure alone. That said, um, I guess two things. Uh, number one, hopefully this becomes a model to look at for other uh, entitlement benefits, right, that people may be eligible for but aren't receiving just because they're not filling out a complicated application form. Right now, the Whitby is 42 different steps long. It's really freaking oh complicated God. to apply for. <laughs> That's a lot. So this is, that is a good thing that they are doing. Um, that said, there are some unknown uh, number of Canadians who aren't even filing their taxes, um, who may be eligible and who aren't part of that 300000 and who will be caught by this auto-enrollment. So there's still other work to do with regards to increasing um, access just through the tax system alone. So another um, piece in the budget that I put under the auto-enrollment category was around the Canada Learning Bond. And um, Andrew Parkin, who's now at the Mowat Centre, wrote a really interesting piece for us a little while back based on his research that showed I think a million dollars a year that's left on the table by Canadian families that do not enroll for this free money, which is, I think, $500 a year that you get um, to put towards your kid's uh, university education. So in the budget, they mentioned that they're going to develop a system where when you have the baby at the hospital, they'll enroll you, just like they do with social insurance numbers now, uh, enroll you right into that. So that, that's pretty interesting. Um, and I, I, So uh, for me, I, I was very interested in the uh, area around uh, research. And if you listen to our podcast, you'll know that Policy Options held an event 
uh, last year with Universities Canada on, on the report of the Fundamental Science Review, which is also called the Naylor Report after their chair, David Naylor. And the report pointed out that government support for fundamental research uh, at our institutions of higher learning has been steadily declining as a percentage of GDP, and we're losing ground vis-a-vis -vis other developed nations. So I think the, tr the three councils, uh, SHRC, NSERC, and CIHR, should be really happy with this budget with an injection of $925 million over five years for their work. And I would also note that SHRC's uh, percentage of the tri-council pie is growing a bit because traditionally uh, that uh, end of the, the funding has been a little bit less than the two science-oriented um, councils. Um, and this really stood out for me. They're putting SHRC in charge of a new fund that will support interdisciplinary research that's on shorter timelines that might be international and that might be higher risks. And that's getting $275 million over five years and then $65 million per year going forward. And I think that's a big deal because you hear from a lot of researchers that they have these really interesting projects, but they don't fit into these kind of narrow silos of each of those research councils. Um, and there's also permanent funding going toward the Canadian Foundation for Innovation, which helps researchers get access to state-of-the-art tools and facilities. And of course, I'd be remiss in not mentioning that I'm celebrating along with my colleagues at the IRPP because there was a $10 million in the budget for the creation of a new mm -hmm. Centre for Excellence mm -hmm. on the Canadian Federation inside our institute. As you might know, the IRPP already has a research program led by Leslie Seidel on Canada's changing federal community. So this funding is going to help expand this work around how different social and economic trends are reshaping the Federation. So Jennifer, I'll just come back to you and notice that women really figure quite heavily in this budget. And I was thinking if you had to do one of those weird di diagrams with words, <laughs> that women would be really big in the middle or equity. Um, so there's, there's uh, stuff around women entrepreneurs and women traders. And I'll just give a shout out to Astrid Pragel, who's written on that topic for us. There's stuff on supporting pay equity in federally regulated industries and substantial funding for status of women in Canada. Oh, okay. <laughs> what do you what do you think, Jennifer, of all this? I think you're absolutely right. If you were to do a wordle, right? I mean, they, that's what the, it's called. The, a wordle. Yeah, yeah. You would totally get like gender as a as a prominent um, piece there. Um, so I tried to actually start to look at like all the various pieces there, and um, and it struck me there there are a lot of different bits to this, but none of them is necessarily very big, right? Like there's there's like uh, earmark of uh, 20 million dollars a year to fund women's groups, for example. There is new money for Statistics Canada to be able to collect data. As you're saying, there's about a four percent increase to status of women's budget, uh, their their operating budget. There's a proposal to have a um, a symposium next spring on women in the workforce, right? There's um, yes, pay le equity legislation to be implemented for the eight percent of workers in Canada that are covered uh, by the federal labor code. Um, details, it sounds like to follow, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what really jumped out at me, actually, was that that, that piece on um, parental leave, like the, second, the dedicated leave for the second parent, actually in dollar figures, ends up being the, the biggest ticket item of all the various bits and pieces. Um, the other pattern that I started to look at was sort of trying to imagine, like, who, who's the target market for this, right? And I started to think, this largely seems to be um, a number of different measures that would be of interest to younger women who have higher levels of education. So, like, you know, millennial voters who are 
um, perhaps more, um, you know, uh, feminist in their orientation already. Um, and that probably makes a lot of political sense when you actually look at who was supporting the Liberals in the last election. Not directed at rural r women, for example. I, there, it was harder to see a big, you know, hook for, for or for older women, for example, right? Um, so uh, they seem to have a target, uh, a target audience in mind. Colin, speaking of target audiences, business? Small business? I don't know. I don't get the sense that they're a big target audience. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I mean, the minister said today that you know they're they're doing their homework on business competitiveness and and business innovation. Um, you know, and it, it really is. You know, it, it would have been nice to see at least you know um, a, a read in terms of where they're what they're thinking about, what they think the appropriate initiatives might be, even just to hint at their sort of uh, framework of analysis um, towards uh, business investment. Um, but the the approach to the U.S. tax changes seems to be, yeah, let's 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 hold. Um, I'd argue that you know um, um, the the non-economic variables in their calculation with respect to what's happened in the U.S. in terms of the desirability of people or corporations to move there, they're putting a lot of emphasis on that, and also the very strong domestic position in Canada in terms of the ec the economic environment is certainly not spurring them into action. And so mm -hmm. I think that uh, that were one of those things to change, say perhaps a different administration in the U.S. Um, or, or say perhaps a much slower economic growth in Canada vis-a-vis -vis the U.S., then I think you would have to, you know, bring these things to the forefront. But it would still be nice to sort of get an understanding as to what they think the different elements uh, in terms of policy design should be to attract more foreign capital to Canada. And I think there would probably be some legitimate concerns around that. So just some a few last things I'll throw in here, which I wrote down in my notes that jumped out at me. Um, there's a lot in the budget sprinkled in here around data. So for Statistics Canada, including a new Center for Gender Diversity and Inclusion, Inclusion Statistics, which something tells me that Conservatives will hate the, the sound of that name. But actually, um, there is a, quite a lot of um, uh, you know, support for the idea of more disaggregated data around you know, who's getting jobs and who's not getting jobs and what, what culture are you from or what gender are you from and understanding a little bit better how different people are being left out of, uh, of, of different parts of Canadian society. So, disaggregated data. Um, for ESDC, the, empl the Employment Department, they're going to get money for tracking labor market information a little bit more closely. And there's also going to be funding for a digital research infrastructure strategy to support more open access to big data. So data, data, data. Um, and on the Indigenous policy front, uh, there's 1.5 billion over five years for healthcare initiatives, 1 billion over five for housing. Uh, any last thoughts? and Jennifer? Uh, the, no, I mean, really, the only thing I'd add is, is you know, with an activist sort of federal government now with a big, also a big plank on, on pharmacare in the agenda. I mean, I think that, and, and of course, I, I mentioned sort of these new programs. So you've got EI working on claim now becoming a, a permanent fixture. That, that is, that's a big deal as well. You've got um, um, the new f framework for the uh, Canada Workers Benefit. You've got the Child Benefit. You've got um, a low-income benefit for housing. And you, I think like really, it's going to be really important to, to, to um, monitor the success of these, particularly um, as they relate to different individual provinces. So, you know, pushing these things out in the provinces in the appropriate way to their low-income strategies, their low-income frameworks is going to be really critical um, uh, going forward. So that's sort of what I see as being another takeaway for me from a, from a very active federal government. Thank you. And Jennifer? 
Um, well, so to echo your point around data, 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 I think that this is a government who has come to grips with the fact that they don't necessarily have the information that they've been wanting to be able to do the results-based approach for, for policy analysis. So they're making some serious investments. That's good to see. Um, to the point about FedProv coordination, right, I mean, we're, what's what seems to be maybe missing so far in some of the, the bits and pieces around, for example, the new workers' benefit is um, we still don't have the National Poverty Reduction Plan, and, and so looking to see how is this, how is this all going to hang together and how is this going to work in terms of the coordinated effort with provinces. And as Colin had pointed out earlier, right, there's still this overarching question around fiscal capacity differences at the federal versus provincial level. So now that we're also adding on a commitment to talk about pharmacare, which is a potentially very serious investment to be making, it'll be really interesting to see how the government manages that federal-provincial relationship, both in terms of bringing some coherence to its own policy approach, but also thinking more carefully about how it's, it's you know, balancing the relationships within the Federation. Well, thank you to you both, and thank you to Maddie Haslam, who is our producer today. For our listeners, you can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud, and you can also connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thanks for joining us.